Welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're in Cambridge, Massachusetts at LAM Partners to catch up with Dan Weisman, Senior Associate and Director of LAM Labs. Dan, you've got a pretty cool looking space here. The weather's pretty nice this time of year. I can't complain. How are things going for you? Pretty well. That's awesome. Well, hey, it's been a journey for you. You've spent about 15 years in lighting so far. You've got 15 times the multiplier of your choice to go, probably. Maybe one, maybe two. But take us back to where you got your start in lighting. Who's Dan, and how'd you find light? Thanks, and welcome to our office. I have an interesting path to architectural lighting. I have wanted to be an architect since I was a little kid. Went to architecture school and was planning on finding a job in architecture. And right before I graduated from my undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis, I met Paul Zafiriu, a principal at Land Partners, when he received the Distinguished Alumni Award, and I happened to sit at his table. At the end of the dinner, he asked me if we wanted to come to Cambridge to work at LAM, and he also noted that they had bagels on Fridays, and I was hooked. Wait, you gotta explain the bagel <laughs> thing to me. What's it with bagels on Fridays, and can I come back? Today's yeah. Friday. Well, Where's these, the bagels? Unfortunately, COVID life does not allow that these days, but All right. we were doing bagels every Friday or some sort of fun treat, and that was definitely my, my primo selling point for coming here. But seriously, I uh, was very sensitive to light and climate and had a very strong sense of wanting to be in something that involved sustainability. And at the time, the big hot news on the street in lighting design was the 20-watt ceramic metal halide lamp that was this supposedly super energy efficient, super high output lamp. Did that thing have a special name? It was, yeah, it was the like Cosmo? The, oh, I don't remember that one, but it was like the T4 and a half. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, of course, the T4.5. Right. Those things are everywhere today. Totally. Um, funnily enough, we did a, an exhibition at a gallery back right before COVID. We wanted to relamp the existing lights in the space with LED color-changing screw-based lights and only to find out that they were, in fact, metal halide. So that became a, a gel application instead. Wait, what are gels? No, I'm just kidding. Funny. Anyway, so I was here at LAM from 2005 to 2008, worked on a number of really wonderful projects. I was only planning on staying for two years. I stayed for a third, but I had always planned on going back to architecture school for graduate school and ended up doing that. Spent two years at Ann Arbor at University of Michigan, where I did my MARC and then... Go Blue. Oh, yeah. Got to have my experience going to a Big Ten football game. An absolutely massive, massive, massive arena with a lot, a lot, a lot of beer. And Barack Obama spoke at my graduation. No and I got way. to sit on the field for it in the rain, which was amazing. Did he say Obama out at the end? Probably. Nice. I had always known that I'd wanted a second degree, maybe was interested in a PhD, and was planning on sticking around at Michigan for a, a Master of Science and then ended up getting into a degree program at Harvard Graduate School of Design called the Design Studies Program. I worked with Christoph Reinhardt, amongst others, did a lot of work in daylighting analysis and spent some time working in Haiti doing project work that spanned energy analysis, daylighting, community engagement. It was very fulfilling, very interesting. After the earthquake, it was you know, a very hard place for them to be in. So yeah. it was really very eye-opening. 
And then after I graduated, I sort of got stuck in a, I was doing some design consulting for some solar energy companies, was working at home. I was wait, we were waiting for a grant to go through that would bring me back to Haiti. It was taking a really long time and I finally cut the cord and needed to get a real job. So I went and got hired at Softy Architects. I'd worked for Softy's office when I was at Lamb, so I had a pretty easy in there and worked there for about a year and a half. What'd you do for Softy? A whole range of things. Most importantly, in, in one sense, most importantly, I got my CA hours finished for my intern development program work to become a licensed architect. Fair enough. <laughs> but I also helped run a competition for a huge housing development in Singapore, which was an incredibly rewarding experience. Singapore is an amazing city. I built the grasshopper script for the sky bridge for the Chongqing building that is now just completed in Chongqing, China. Cool. Which was pretty sweet. And I spent a lot of time working on a tower in Toronto that was you know, a good experience. There's a lot of towers in Toronto. A lot of towers. All that being said, I was starting to think about my next steps. And then Lamb called me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming back. They were down a designer. And so I thought about it a while, uh, jumped to the opportunity. And, and in doing so, I had also become really interested in developing an, an R&D lab. And so proposed to the firm that I could develop Lamb Labs as a sort of side piece of our office. And the principals were really excited about the idea and brought me back in with the intent that I would sort of kick this new platform off. What is Lamb Labs? Lamb Labs is, it's a headspace. It's a way for our office to develop ideas that might be outside the, the realm of a typical project. It also encompasses project work that might not be traditional lighting design where we're hired by a client to design the lighting for their building or urban space or whatever. So it encompasses us doing competitions, doing exhibition work, engaging in academic research, working with lighting manufacturers to develop lighting products at a much more sophisticated level. Increasingly, it's also been our framework for doing academic engagement and teaching. That's really cool. You guys have a, a multifaceted approach in the sense that lighting design maybe typically is lights in a space or lights in a plaza, but you look at light as it can be anywhere and everywhere and you want to help contribute in any way you can, including the design of luminaires, which is something that's fascinating. And it brings up an interesting topic, and that is interacting with light. There's several ways that people interact with light, whether they're conscious of it or unconscious of it. What's your take on interacting with light as somebody who maybe isn't informed about lighting? Lighting, first of all, is a wide-ranging topic. And to limit the conversation, I'll talk to architectural lighting. I think lighting is the invisible force that's guiding people's perception of space. To me, the most dynamic spaces are those in which the lighting is so wrapped in with the architecture that it's, it's impossible to sort of tease it out. The concept of sort of the lighting showroom or the signature fixture that happens to be emitting some light is significantly secondary in my book to one's experience of architectural space, material, form, transitions. You mentioned earlier that you think about design often, whether or not it's what you're actually doing at that physical point in time, 
or as it relates to whatever else is on your mind. When it comes to lighting design, and you dive right into what it means to illuminate a space, what do you think about when it comes to you personally interacting with light? Well, I think the most significant driver for me, and I think it's something that was instilled in me by the culture of our firm and our history, is the philosophy of light what you want to see. Creating an illuminated environment is really about identifying the surfaces, the objects, the spatial qualities that you're trying to let people see and experience. When you think about that space that people are going to see and that they're going to experience, do you think about how they're walking into that space, why they're walking into that space? Does it make sense for them to be in a certain place in the space? Do you want them to interact with light in a certain way, or does light guide the interaction of the space overall? Well, it's a bit of a loaded question. I think it's... Absolutely. Um, <laughs> in a lot of, I'm going to use the, the term typical spaces, I'll say spaces of living and working. I think light is a contributor to the overall environment and how people experience those spaces in a seemingly very subtle way. And I, I put that in contrast to a space like theatrical type spaces, museums, enhanced cultural environments that are really intended to elevate one's life experience in one way or another. You can walk into a cathedral, and even if you're not religious at all, you are going to feel the grandeur of that space. You're going to experience the, the quality of light of that space. It's going to have an impact on your being at a very fundamental level. And that may, may or may not be appropriate in a lot of our more mundane environments. So when you step out of that mundane space and you go into an environment of heightened perception, these are typically spaces that maybe are specialty or or spaces that have a specific purpose. Or maybe it's an outdoor plaza. Sure. Talk to me about interacting with light in those spaces. Well, I think you're going to have a more direct relationship with an environment in which there's more of a sense of contrast and the difference between the lighted and unlighted areas is more extreme. In a room where everything is relatively evenly lit, even if there's highlights that create a sense of space or bring down the sense of volume based off of the objectives and the design of the space, there's still a sense that the space is utilitarian in some way. You know, we're sitting in a room right now that has a really lovely uplight around the perimeter that gives the room a sense of verticality and some downlights that give us an even amount of light on the tabletop. But I wouldn't necessarily see this room as a super grand space, but it's still giving us a sense of something beyond the everyday, I guess. But I think when you've got a a space that is more theatrical in a way, people tend to have a much more heightened sense of the light as impacting that space and giving the perception of that space as unique. Perception of unique space. It's something that I feel like we can touch just a little bit more on. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into that cathedral experience and why it creates a certain sense or feel. Sound good? Sure. Great. Hey, real quick, it's Sam. The LightPod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. 
They bring you content that's fun and easy to share, listen, and watch, like short two-minute videos for this podcast. Check them out. That's lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Dan and I were just chatting a little bit more about all these things in light, the way we interact with it, and how honestly light interacts with a space to to convey things and to create certain environments that people live and work in for either a short or a long period of time. Dan, talk to me just a little bit more about what what it means to create that environment where people either interact with light or light starts to interact with them. In the everyday, I think there's there's moments that can be had that that elevate people's lives. There's a lot of highfalutin discussion about how light influences people's lives at, at a high level, as well as creation of, of healthy environments and, and yeah, all this. More, more productive environments. Yeah, light does this, right. light does that for you. I think at the end of the day, most people want to have spaces in which they feel comfortable, that they have control over their environment and can manipulate their environment to suit their own needs. Something that we and I try to try to do is give our users the ability to do that as simply and comfortably as possible. And, you know, one anecdote that I've become pretty attuned to is, you know, with all the development of all these fancy Hatsitatsi control systems out there, what seems to really work the best still is the simple button on the wall. You know, something pretty straightforward still seems to be the easiest way for people to engage. And just because it's a simple button on the wall doesn't necessarily mean that the design isn't incredibly sophisticated behind that. At the end of the day, it still needs to be boiled down to something that's very simple and easy to engage with if, some, if it is to be engaged with. I think there's, there's two ways to, to think about that control, as you mentioned. There's controls for the designer, then there's controls for the user. Sure. And something that I, I find very fascinating is especially with the continued development of dynamic systems and, and light that is actually doing something over time that is automated in some way or another. How do those systems that may be incredibly complex on the back end reveal themselves to the user in either some seemingly banal or simple way, like a simple set of buttons on the wall, or something that creates an unexpected sense of delight, like a system in a project that I'm just completing right now, it's a stairwell in a parking garage. It happens to be a parking garage that is an old brutalist building downtown. The stairwell is a concrete shell. Like There's no windows, it's... It's a shaft. Yeah, it's a shaft, exactly. It's a funky shaped shaft. But what we did is there's a ribbon of color changing light that runs the entire eight stories and a series of occupancy sensors, one on each floor. And when you walk into a given floor, the intent is that the occupancy sensor on a given floor will pick up your presence and begin a light show that is unique to that floor. And as you walk down the stairs, it progressively picks you up and and changes the show accordingly. So it's a way of bringing a sense of delight and mystery and intrigue to what is otherwise a banal emergency stare. To me, that's a really good example of injecting design into the everyday and elevating a space that might otherwise be considered back of house. And what's interesting is 
it could be considered a passive way of interacting with light because the system is designed and set up to do something when someone walks into a space. But you don't tell that person what floor to walk into or how fast to walk or where to go. So it still is an interaction. Exactly. It's an interaction in a passive way. So is it a passive system? Is it an active system? Is it light art? Is it lighting design? What is it? There's so many things that go into that. And I think what I'm really excited about in the stuff that you guys get the opportunity to work on and, and think outside of the box on is that the fresh approach, the different approach, the uniqueness of evaluating an opportunity around constraints that a typical solution isn't necessarily the answer. Well, and good second parallel to that is one of my favorite constraints is a tight budget because it takes all the fancy hardware off the table and forces a much closer interaction between us and the architect. I am a registered architect. I speak that language. And when I engage with my client, they're also an architect, usually. And that puts us in a unique position because very few other consultants are actually operating really at the same wavelength as the people that have hired them. That adds credence to the idea of architectural integration at a really fundamental level. And having a tight budget forces one of two things. One, a generic lighting engineered solution that is overlaid on the architecture and is devoid of an integrated process. It's a pre-engineered integrated solution that doesn't require design thinking. Or it's using cost-effective hardware to embolden the architecture and elevate it in clever and unique ways. And I think that's something that our office generally and my practice personally is something we we take a lot of pride in. When you talk about all of those things, what do you think is is the best way for you to go about understanding that interaction? To be brutally honest, it's all through digital modeling and visualization these days. We are now operating in ostensibly real-time design. So using photometrically accurate visualization software to be able to model the lighting as it would actually interact with material in real life in the digital environment and be able to test and manipulate. It was really a big seed change. The parallel I make is when architecture found digital fabrication and all of a sudden architects that were forever relying on contractors to build their creations all of a sudden were using digital fabrication tools to create the end result directly out of their own offices. In the same way, we have now been able to operate directly on the lighting itself as opposed to operating through an intermediary medium such as drawings, sketches, markups. In a section drawing, for example, that may be a great way to convey a simple concept to a client or to an owner about what the intent of the light is supposed to do, but it's not really going any further than that. It can't really be used as an analytical tool beyond that. Sure. And so using photometrically accurate visualization in real time allows us to, to actually design the lighting in the space and see its effects and understand the experience. And one thing I really like doing is starting with the shot that the architect has provided us with their sort of sexy rendering. Absolutely. The, the concept. The, but no, but the 
particular view that they've taken uh-huh. and then turn the camera around and remind them that that view that they've created is not the only way to experience this space and to actually provide them, well, now with VR, that's becoming more standard and with tools like Enscape and Lumion that allow the architect to experience this too. This is a little less of a of a shift than than it was maybe five years ago, but I feel very strongly that we're thinking about the entirety of a space and its experience and not just the curated view. Yep, absolutely. It's immersing yourself and making things real. Photorealistic, real-time design. That kind of takes all the guesswork out. But but what it does is it gives you guys the opportunity, I think, to focus on what you do best, and that's the design and, and understanding it and evaluating the benefits versus whatever potential pitfall there is by legitimately knowing what's it going to be like, what's going to happen. And this isn't to diminish any of the other very critical aspects of the design process for us, you know, doing mock-ups, sample review, testing products and sketching and engaging our clients in sort of multiple ways. But I've found that the most rewarding experiences that I have in the design process with my clients are getting into that model and then getting on a web conference. And instead of like sending them some polished presentation, bringing up the model in real time and actually working through design options with them. And basically, I like to call myself their lighting Sherpa. So I'm, That's I'm, fun. I'm helping them realize their, their architecture. I'm their, I'm their architectural psychologist and lighting Sherpa. Architectural psychologist and lighting Sherpa. That's a whole nother podcast right there, that, isn't it? That is my unofficial title that I've self-proclaimed. I like it. It's really fun. You know, my final question, I think it's when you look at all of this space and the ability to evaluate interaction with light and almost do it in real time, is there anything that you feel like is lacking that you want to see come or maybe is on the horizon that you're excited for? On the technology level, I think we're getting ever closer. You know, I, I used the term real time. The truth is that there is still, you know, the momentary lags, the hiccups that come into play with that. I think we're still beholden to the building industry standards and working in Revit, which is, bit, which is a bit of a disconnect from this way of working. I think the technology continues to improve, and I'm sure we'll see that come to somewhat of an apex within the next couple of years. Yep. I think on the lighting technology side, we're also starting to see the field pretty much saturated. The advent of LEDs brought a host of new opportunities for for fixture design and fixture options and we're really seeing a fairly saturated market on that front. So, I'm not really sure what's going to be next on that end. I think it's iteration and evolution as opposed to revolution at this point. Absolutely. Maybe finally getting rid of some of that old stuff that just doesn't need to be around anymore. Sure. And I think one, you know, one thing on the lighting hardware technology side that we're seeing is the drift away from hardware that relies on legacy light source industrial design methodology. Yeah. Like, say, a four-foot lamp. Yeah. Like why, like, why are we designing around a four-foot lamp still? Well, the reason for that is because the entire ceiling industry is based around the two-by-two ACT ceiling. Yeah, until the salines are gone too. Or, or yeah. Or <laughs> actually, one I'm, thing I am really looking forward to is the 
DC bus ACT system. There you go. But we'll see when that actually comes out. But the thing that I, I really look forward to is, and this is very timely right now, is just diversifying our industry. You know, we are woefully white. Yep. And I think one thing that I have a hard time stomaching sometimes is the fact that, you know, I spent a year working in one of the poorest countries in the world. And then I am now doing projects with some of the richest companies in the world. And where is lighting fit within the realm of social agency, in the realm of, of equity? And how do we make a case for good lighting design as an equitable opportunity? Something that not just the fancy buildings get, but everybody can have access to. And do you feel like that's a, a case of the product that's being supplied or the service that's required to create it? There's an inevitable relationship between the amount of training and education required to get into the building industry at the design, on the design side and the barriers to entry that have been put in place over the last 150 years. Yeah, they're, but they're I, difficult to difficult to break down, but it can certainly be addressed and we can start to not only have conversations, but try to create opportunities and programs or, or ways to maybe go into community outreach. But I think there's also an interesting relationship between what's sold to the public about light and how most of the general public experiences light. The way I see it, matriculate is really through like residential scale lighting hardware that you know why is it that every single apartment in boston area has a boob light in the middle of every single room or incredibly glary down lights as sort of the the basis of design for a typical space because it's cheap but there's ways to integrate cheap lighting hardware in other ways that can create a much more comfortable luminous environment and i think that there's just that's comes down to a lack of education and design thinking that hasn't really pervaded through the industry. Diversity is something that's definitely important. And we need to look at it as a design industry across the board to, to bring more people into it from all walks of life, whether or not it's coming in to be a designer or someone who's just simply going to have the opportunity to, to take the service of a designer to improve the benefit of their space. I spent a lot of time doing daylighting analysis and daylight design work. And our office feels very strongly that we are part of that design process. And I think something that often gets lost when talking about architectural lighting is the integration of daylighting at a very fundamental level of building design. There are architectural interventions and ways in which people can engage with daylight that is so much more effective. And so something that we really strive for is, is creating really wonderful daylit spaces and, you know, using sophisticated daylight analysis tools that can help engage with that piece of the design process is something that we've been, we've done a lot of work with. When you talk about daylight analysis and sophisticated tools, it sounds fancy, but it does. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's actually trivial. The best light source out there is the one that comes up and goes down every day, and it's the natural sunlight. Exactly. As humans, we fundamentally love it. We're attracted to it until it goes down, and then we just love fire. 
Uh, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, you know, all the all the analysis that we we end up doing is really trying to figure out one thing, which is what is the daylit area? How much of the space inside a building is going to feel daylit to people throughout as much of the year as possible? And that way, you can use that and then look at the rest of the space and evaluate it with electric light. Yeah, balance it. Balance it out. Exactly. Balance, balance, balance. Balance. Are you a gymnast? I am definitely not a gymnast. Definitely not a balance being king, huh? You know, I got my moments. All right. Dan, I... thanks so much for catching up. It's been great to have you on the podcast. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get in touch? Hit me up at dan at lampartners.com. Dan at lampartners.com. In Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Ivy League capital of lighting design. Amongst other things. Amongst other things. Thanks a lot, man. Dan, we'll see you soon. You too. Bye. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to go back to wherever you listen to it and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to make sure you never miss another light pod where we interview people that are excited about lighting, that have cool stories and want to share their thoughts on what's on their mind today. Until then, cheers.